0: Brain Over Belly podcast, Solving the Puzzle of Obesity with Dr. David Brown of Idaho BMI. If you go online, you can definitely find stories about people who had bariatric surgery, lost some weight, and then gained it all back again. Today, Dr. Brown reveals the secret to long-term success. Here's your host, Rick Dunn.
1: Dr. Brown, great to see you again. Hello and welcome. Here we go. How are you, Rick? I'm fantastic. Uh, Another beautiful day. Bariatric surgery. We're going to talk... A lot of times we have guests in here, but today uh, we just have Dr. Brown. We've got some important stuff to dive into. So bariatric surgery does not work for everyone. Why is that?
0: Well, I think it goes back to... The truth that uh, the fundamental problem of obesity is poorly understood, generally. There's a lot of information out there, and everybody has sort of their own ideas about it. Generally, I would say it's poorly understood, and I would argue also that these operations are very poorly understood. So, if we're really going to give people the right tools to be successful, doing that requires us to understand both the problem and the operations.
1: When you say an understanding both, you're talking about from a doctor's standpoint, a patient
0: standpoint, everybody? Yeah. Um, you know, how to be successful after surgery. A, a person has to understand how the operation works. And that requires a person to really detach from the traditional thinking about the problem, about obesity and what really causes it. And so where do all the little things that
1: you talk about your patients need to be doing to stay on the right track and to make sure that they're having success, where does that fall in or how important is that? Um, It's
0: critical. And as we've said here many times, really the fundamental problem of obesity is more about the brain and the central nervous system than anything else. And also, bariatric surgery works primarily uh, through its impact on a person's brain and central nervous system so to really know how to use the operation and to be successful you have to understand what's going on neurologically and what to be doing every day to guide uh, those neurological changes after surgery and make them permanent if if a person doesn't know that stuff it's a bit of a crapshoot so if somebody just goes out and has bariatric
1: surgery, and then they just tell themselves, "I'm, I'm never going to get big again. I'm going to, I'm just going to try not to eat as much and maybe exercise a little bit." That's that's really
0: not the path we're going down here, is it? Some people will be successful that way. Um, they just have enough willpower or determination, whatever. A lot of folks will be able to be successful that path. Um, in my experience. Um, It's really interesting because in my experience, the path which leads to by far the greatest success is also the path that eventually becomes the easiest for people, and I think that's not an accident. Maybe the path is most successful because it does become easiest, and it really takes the whole battle of willpower out of the equation, and I think that's so important.
1: But willpower is part of it in the beginning. Until you train your brain to get to
0: that point to where. Sure, sure. There's some willpower involved all along the journey. But if you back up and you look at the human brain, one of its biggest jobs is to automate things. You know, walking in here today, you weren't thinking right foot, left foot, right foot, left foot. I don't you- even remember walking in. <laughs> <laughs> you automated that stuff when you were about 12 months old. And you really haven't thought about it since. The bottom line is the brain automates so many things. That's its job. And it's it's driven by efficiency. To, you know, to be able to do more things, you want to automate things. Well, there's a lot of things in the brain that have been automated that aren't great, specifically with metabolism and food and appetite and all those things. So the best way to ensure long-term success is to automate uh, the brain in a way that the new default is very supportive of this new lifestyle. If a person never gets to that point and doesn't really reformat, reprogram their brain, their default is going to be the old way of living, and it's going to be much, much easier to go back to that.
1: I know you're like the uh, analogy king. Do you have an analogy for us?
0: Sure. <laughs> i trying to understand all of yes. this. <laughs> so since I was a kid, I loved explorers. Mount Everest uh, and the, the explorers from the last 500 years. Yeah, it's cool. And uh, back in 1911, uh, there were two groups of explorers who set out to be the first ones uh, to, to stand on the South Pole. Mm-hmm. To our knowledge, it had never been done. Uh, one group was a Scandinavian group led by a guy named uh, Raald Amundsen. And uh, he had his team and their approach to it uh, was very methodical. Every day... They planned to trek for five to six hours and they were just, they're not going to kill themselves. They're just going to be very methodical and do the same thing every day. Well, there was a British group led by a guy named Robert Falcon Scott. That's a great name, but (laughs) their approach was very different. They were going to just set out every day to go as far as they could and, and to achieve as much as possible every single day. And it's very interesting that, of course, who do you think arrived at the South Pole first? I'm guessing the first group, uh, by the way you're talking yes. to me. <laughs> yes. The, the Scandinavians got there first and planted their flag, went home to Is the cheers the of the nation. Is that the other group was tired? They tired themselves out? or uh, Well, actually, the Brits, they eventually died. <laughs> they, they did dot, yeah on the way back when they got to the south pole they saw the flag of the scandinavians and they had a, a tent set up so they were really bummed out uh, but on the way back just given their exposure and exhaustion yeah uh, most of that crew froze to death including robert falcon scott so and this story has been used in a lot of different arenas you well, know, that's what business I was ask leadership etc
1: is this analogy, this thought process, this isn't something you can just use to lose weight. This is something you could use in all sorts of different aspects of life, right?
0: Right. And, and really, if you step back, and we've said this before, it's about human potential. Um, and I, I really am a believer in the idea that to achieve the greatest potential requires repetition of behaviors and habits, And in my practice, I see two groups of people very clearly. Um, The first group of people, they buy in to all these details as far as what they're eating. They eat once a day. They do the counting as they chew. They time the break. They buy into it. And they just accept the reality that I'm going to do this and this is going to be my life. Well, those people get to a place after surgery, and it doesn't take very long, where They are shocked with their success, and I think they're more shocked with how easy it becomes. Second group of people, they never totally buy into these details and these habits, and I've come to realize that after surgery, everybody's losing weight. Everybody feels good, and it's very exciting. And with the early success after surgery comes the temptation to think, this is awesome. I love this. I feel so good. Yeah. I don't need that stupid counting, timing stuff. <laughs> Forget this stuff. The doctor right, told that's, me hard. To do. that's hard. That's <laughs> hard. Yeah, and I would argue that they don't ultimately automate those things in their brain that are going to, you know, increase and maximize their chances of being successful long term.
1: But it's not. You say it's hard. It's hard right then, but eventually. Uh, You're saying that your brain takes over and it's not hard anymore. You're not thinking about it. Kind of like when I was walking into the room this morning, right?
0: Right. Right. And I think that's the most shocking thing to people because they've battled their whole lives. They've tried everything. Uh, They've exerted as much willpower as possible. It's really sort of a warfare mindset. So are other doctors having this
1: conversation with their patients? Is this something unique to what you do? Uh you know bariatric surgery is you you can get that around the world how are
0: people tackling this with their patients yeah there's a lot of different programs um to my knowledge I'm the only one that has incorporated this sort of brain science neurology to this degree of having people count as they chew actually time the break and then right. listening to the those sensory signals um I'm sort of a neurology nerd, but I see the change that happens. And so a part of that also is the importance of long-term follow-up. And what's that exactly? Well, it's you know, in in some programs, uh, people are, you know, they see the surgeon two weeks after surgery, they take a look at the incisions, and then by and large, they're they're really not followed over time after that. So they're on their own after that? Yeah. And give a few instructions, say good luck? yeah. Yeah. And it's... The truth is, for some reason, I believe the surgeon has leverage that others may not. I think it's human psychology. A person wants to trust and believe in that person who's actually cutting into you.
1: Well, I mean, you know, if I'm talking to family members – about something medical or I'm talking to you <laughs> I might go with you you went to school for a couple years right a couple so, of so years. We, uh, <laughs> you know one or two things sure uh, but uh,
0: the long term follow up is just so important because everybody needs some fine tuning and runs into frustrations yeah. or questions and it's so important to be able to walk through that process with people over time well walk us through what that long-term follow-up is what exactly do you do with your patients sure so you know before surgery we talk a lot i'd say primarily about food you know just repeating concepts of what we should be eating and the teaching the point or the principle that eventually the target is to eat once a day of course, we, we discuss and explain the counting, the timing of the break, listening to those signals that the operation changes. So we're trying before surgery really to build a person's understanding of that. And after surgery, we continue that. But we get more into identity, um, sleep, and some of those topics that you and I, you and I have discussed, but they take on a different role after surgery. So I see people, uh, my nurse practitioner and I, we see people for once a month uh, over the first year at least. And then after that, it depends on how they're doing. If if people are really struggling, we will continue to see them at that frequency. If they're doing great, then we space out the visits. And how long? I mean,
1: I, I guess it would depend on where the patient's at and what their needs are. But what's typical? Like you see these patients for a year? Uh, to, well, I guess it's 18
0: months is the process, right? For the yeah, most part? It really comes down to how well they're doing and uh, whether they'll come back. That's the reality. And if someone, again, if someone after surgery, say three months, they feel great and they sort of am thinking, okay, I got this, I'm good. Mm-hmm. And I don't see them again. We You're will, worried, aren't We you? will see them. At a much higher rate, two or three years down the road, and they're wanting a revision operation or they want help getting back on track. So I'm convinced that it's consistency and reminders and repetition as well as that troubleshooting in that first year after surgery. It,
1: it's all those little things that you've talked about over and over and over again, that if they start getting away from those things, then they find themselves in trouble. What For those that are just listening for the first time, what are those little things? If we could just break them down really fast. sure.
0: So I think it, it maybe makes sense to use a, a comparison with the natural world, the animal kingdom. You think about a bear who hibernates in the winter or even birds that migrate long distances, you know, as the seasons change, uh, the bear in the summertime, it's preparing for hibernation. And, you know, that's when fruit, uh, ripens and a bear, eats a lot of fruit. And there's a, there's the intake of certain nutrients in that period that sort of switches, uh, the bear's body into this mode of saving energy in the form of fat. um, Same thing with birds migrating. The bottom line is with modern foods, hyperpalatable foods, they get us stuck in this summer stage where we're consuming and we never seem satisfied and we're always preparing for winter by storing fat and we never break out of that. So the bottom line is we need to stay away from... Carbohydrates and processed foods. And All a person right. with a history of obesity is just hypersensitive to carbohydrates and processed foods. It's always going to kick them back into that summer mode of storing fat. So what we eat is super important. We want to stick with nutrient dense foods, meat, eggs, etc. Um we want to target the idea of eating once a day. And again Which
1: sounds insane. If when you're first hearing this, you go, What? But it actually makes sense the way you explain it and how you talk about listening to your body instead of just eating because it's lunchtime or it's dinner time.
0: Right. I mean, again, you go back far enough, our ancestors, food was not abundant. And our bodies are designed to cycle in and out of fasting. It's just if, if we never fast, we're never entering that winter, if you will, or in that stage where we're burning fat. We're always going to be storing it. So we have to cycle in and out of of fasting. And you can look at any system in the body, whether it's the brain or the immune system, muscles, every system functions more effectively and more efficiently when we're doing that. So yeah, uh, I encourage my patients to listen to their body, but really the target is to eat once a day. When they eat, yes, it's very mechanical. It's repeating these behaviors, but if you think about it, Every time you and I eat, it is a, in response to a neurological stimulus. Mm-hmm. You feel hungry. Yep. Or you see food. You smell it. Something is going on. You're bored or something. something neurological that gets you to eat. And the eating experience is actually a very powerful pathway to the brain. And so in that context, we chew every bite 20 to 40 times and we count. We time a one-minute break between bites. And a lot of people think that's, you know, that has to do with the texture of the food. It really doesn't. It's all about brain activity. And the third thing we do as we eat is to focus our attention as much as we can on those sensory signals going from the abdomen into the brain.
1: So if you do all those things, you're only going to have time to eat one meal a day, right? (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. Um, Well, there's more of the little things. Uh,
0: You have some breathing techniques? Yeah, but before we go there, water. Yes, water. So, very interesting that... Fascinating. I I suspected for years that the human body had the capacity to convert glucose to fructose. Turns out that's true. And if we are dehydrated, dehydration, which 70% of Americans are chronically dehydrated, that will push our body into or keep our body into that summer stage of storing fat. So... It's a small thing that people need to hydrate. And so we push that also, getting in at least two liters or 64 ounces of water every single day. Again, because if we're dehydrated, we're going to kick back into that fat storage mode. So water is very important. Uh, But yes, then there are the uh, exercises, the breathing exercises, the the meditation uh, that really helps to support... With changes we are seeking to make after bariatric surgery, the changes in the brain and the nervous system.
1: I've tried some of that stuff to help me go to sleep at night, and it works. Good. Um, it, it really does. Breathing instead. You know, you hear as you grow up, just count sheep, and maybe that'll work. <laughs> and the breathing works a whole lot better than counting sheep, trust me.
0: <laughs> Speaking of sleep, sleep is a, a big deal as well, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, and we've talked at length about that, and it's these small things. Again, the the body is designed to cycle, you know, fasting to eating and to cycle from daytime to nighttime, sleeping and wakefulness. Super important, and if we alter that and adjust it, we're going to be off from a metabolic standpoint.
1: Really, all of these things are pretty, I mean, they seem like they're common sense. They all make sense when you talk about them. I guess chewing, unless somebody talks to you about how to chew or how to time that or what to do, you're not going to really know what to do. But sleeping, drinking water, those types of things, a lot of us know that we're supposed to be doing those things. Um, If you're going to go get bariatric surgery, it's just crucial to follow follow these
0: small steps that you're giving them. I believe so, yes. If a person doesn't, they will eventually go back to that world of dieting and that battle of willpower and fighting cravings, it's in, and, and just nobody can do that Yeah. and win yeah. almost nobody. So the brain is the most powerful tool we have and we know how to automate it and reformat it. And that's, that's what we're working toward.
1: I've got two things in my notes I'm supposed to remind you to talk about. And the first one, I'm pretty sure I can't even pronounce it, <laughs> but I'm going to try. Okay. Uh, Hysteresis? Is that the correct uh, way to say it? I said it hysteresis. wrong. Okay. Yeah. Hysteresis. Okay.
0: Hysteresis, metabolic flexibility. Sure. So, hysteresis, it really is an engineering term. Um, it's been applied to this field of metabolism, and some people will talk about metabolic memory. In other words, say a person has a history of struggling with obesity, diabetes. They go down this journey, and they're doing great. If they turn... And, you know, whatever. They want to reward themselves and eat a piece of pie or something. The body remembers, in a sense, and it will go back to the old way of doing things from which genes are activated, which enzyme systems are generated, and as a result of those things, a pers- you know, it's, it's pulling a person back into that world of willpower and cravings, it, and it happens very quickly. And so... You know, it's sort of like a train track, you know, the old junction. Yeah. And you got that hand switch. Uh-huh. It's This hysteresis principle is that um, that switch will change very quickly once a person has had this problem in their life. Or you can think of it about, a, about um, hypersensitivity. There's always going be to be that predisposition to go down that pathway.
1: It's kind of like if you feed a little puppy, and the, or you give them a little <laughs> treat or whatever. Whenever they do, they want that treat again, right. And again, your you're body's the them. same way, right? Right.
0: It, it's absolutely genius. The human body is incredible, and it has its own way of remembering those things.
1: God, it's like a different person
0: living in you. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Stop it. Right. Um, second,
1: compliance. I can say that word. Uh, what's important about compliance?
0: Ultimately, I think it's it's that idea of buying into repeating these things, just accepting, look, I'm going to do this. I'm going to adopt these habits every day and be consistent about it because that's the way you reformat the brain. That's the way you get the brain to automate things. And so, and I think, uh, it's just sometimes hard to wrap your brain around that mentally that that's hard, right? I don't want to do that. But in the long run, it becomes incredibly easy. And the, the payoff, the return on investment is absolutely incredible. How with your patients? I know
1: you can't, you probably can't throw a number out there, but when you talk about success and failure, I'm assuming you have a high rate of success with your patients. Do you know about what
0: that is? Or, yes, um, I would say we have a very good success rate. Something that is uh, challenging that challenges uh, our ability to track that is compliance. People continue to come back. Ideally, we want to follow people forever, you know, a decade, two decades to make that number as accurate as possible. But uh, yeah, our, our success rate is is great. Uh, diabetes, for example, in our program, 92% of people who start out diabetic get off of their, all of their diabetes medications pretty quickly after surgery. Wow. So all the
1: small little things, if people go through bariatric surgery and do the small things that you're teaching them to do. What happens if
0: a person will do these things every day? uh, Again, there there are very few guarantees in life, uh, but I've never seen a patient who I thought really bought into these things and is repeating them and follows up who wasn't far more successful than they ever imagined. Um, On the other hand, if a person doesn't um, buy into that, there's a very clear difference in success rates. And so, and it's not just weight, but it's how people feel, how they sleep, how they feel about themselves, how well, they see themselves.
1: That's one thing I was going to ask. How do you define success? What is success? Is that different for every person?
0: Well, in the literature, the bariatric surgery literature, it's defined as a person losing and keeping off at least 50% of their excess weight. So, say before surgery, they have an extra 100 pounds, Mm -hmm. Uh, in that perspective or in that arena, success, long-term success is losing and keeping off at least 50 pounds. I see it a bit different. I I think that's a very low threshold. I think it's a, a low bar for success when you see what happens to people when they do this. In other words, I have people all the time tell me, I haven't weighed this much since I was in high school. Yeah. And they see themselves doing different things. In other words, they see their potential very differently. Uh, and that, that's, I think, ultimately what, we, what I'm wanting for people is not just to lose weight, but to feel differently about their lives and to use this whole experience as a springboard to whatever it is they're supposed to do on the planet. So that is success, is ultimately achieving their potential. So, again, let's just kind
1: of reiterate real fast. Uh, It's a lot more than just having bariatric surgery, isn't it? Because you can go get that in a number of places. There is a whole lot more to this than just having bariatric surgery. Absolutely. The small things, we talked about the water, the sleep, um, eating uh, one meal a day, counting how many times you chew. How many times are we supposed to chew
0: in between (laughs) bites again? 40? It, it, It... Honestly, it doesn't really matter. Okay. I, as long as you're training your brain. Right. It's it's what's happening in the brain when we count, and we are connecting that brain activity with the process of eating. So it really doesn't matter if, you know, and some people come in, I'm, I got to 65. and I, Okay, you, do, you don't have to
1: chew, chew forever. <laughs> to to bragging to you about how many right. chews they got in. It's huh? just
0: about <laughs> activating a very particular part of the brain and engaging it in this process of eating. Uh, wrapping the whole thing up here. How do we do that? Any uh, final words before we uh, kick you out of the studio today? <laughs> I would just reiterate again that there are answers and people's potential for success is far greater than they think. And it's, it's nothing heroic or magical or you know you, they don't have to do anything enormous. It's about doing very small things very consistently. And it's shocking what that leads to. So we just want to send that message out, that there's hope uh, for everybody. Everybody has their own great story to live out.
1: Thank you again for coming in, Dr. Brown, as usual. Thank you, Rick. Appreciate it.